Your story is waiting for you today. Your story has something new to say. But your story will only come out to play when you're alone. Alone. Alone in a room with invisible people. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the third and final annual Halloween episode from Alone in a Room with Invisible People. My name is Rebecca Gallardo and I'm the host. I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to all of the listeners that have supported us over the last two and a half or so years and also congratulations to the writers who have been accepted. You can find links if they are available in our show notes for this episode and episode one on our blog that is alone with invisible people.com and I also wanted to say thank you very much to Holly who did a number of stories wanted to say thank you to Mark whose enthusiasm is clear from his work he does a fantastic job and has done so for the last you know all, for every single episode that we've had him do voices he he really puts his all into it he edits his own work he does a lot of work for free, <laughs> just for fun. And I know he enjoys the stories that we send him. I also wanted to say just a huge shout out to Kevin McLeod, who is responsible for the music for these episodes. His website will be obviously linked in the show notes, as well as every single instance of us using one of his songs. We do um, put the correct attribution in there. But this is not about that. This is absolutely my thanks to him because of his incredible range, his wide variety of genres of music, and not just the genres, but the style and the moods. And he, his site is very easily uh, searchable. You can search for whatever it is that you're looking for. And just really, <laughs> without him... The last year's episode and this year's episode would not sound as good. I don't think we would do as great a justice as we try to do for our writers without some spooky music. I also use some sound effects. So I hope that you guys really enjoy this. This is the whole podcast was a um, labor of love and a passion project, but especially the Halloween episodes, they are, you know, a real joy for me and it is a lot of work, but it is a lot of fun, and the finished product is just too awesome not to share. So I hope, whether you are a listener or a writer, I hope that you enjoy the stories that follow, and just thank you to everyone who has listened to us, who has contributed in any way, shape, or form, who has shared the podcast, and who has shared your work with us. Thank you, guys. The Food Truck Witch by Karen Lynn once upon a time, a witch lived in a cottage in the woods. But times change. Outside the woods, people were driving cars and flying airplanes. They bought computers and digital disc players and baseball bats. They invented guns and bombs and weather radar. And suddenly, a witch in the woods wasn't that big a deal. Her own villagers didn't fear her anymore. If anything, they pitied her crazy old woman in the woods thinks she's churning up a storm every time she pulls off her stockings. 400 years in the same place was enough 
Helga had to admit she was a modern witch in the modern world. She got a manicure and a miniskirt and a tattoo. Then she waved her wand and transformed the old cottage on chicken legs into a brand new pink and white food truck with shiny stainless steel appliances. High time she had a business of her own. She was parked somewhere on Route 66 and knee-deep in a purely recreational spell when someone pounding on the door interrupted her. Go away, she shouted and threw a hex in the visitor's direction. The woman pushed her way inside anyway. I'm the health inspector. Helga quickly swept a pile of bat bones behind a toaster. I wasn't expecting a health inspector. What we don't call a head. The woman jerked the refrigerator open without so much as an if you please. You can't. I'm the health inspector. She was already sniffing a bottle of dream filter. That's spoiled. Spoiled, Helga repeated. It most certainly is not spoiled. Smell it. Helga threw the bottle in the trash, easier than explaining to a mortal why you don't go around sniffing dream filters. She could always retrieve it later. The health inspector peered down at the label on the next tub. I can't read this, she complained. Does that say frog entrails? Frog entrails? Helga feigned shock. No, it's some faux noodles. I can't spell worth... And it expired in 1863? No, 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 no. That's June 18th. I told you my handwriting was... If you can't read it yourself, that's just as bad as not having a label. The inspection went on and on. The health inspector thought the nocturne moss drying behind the refrigerator was common mold. She called the heretic locusts Helga had raised from nymphs an infestation. She even insulted the mandrake. When she was finished, she tapped her clipboard. You're going to have to deal with all of this, she said. You have 48 hours. Helga took the citation. By then, it was a very long list, and 48 hours was such a very short time. She promised she would do all of it. Then she pushed the health inspector headfirst into the beautiful stainless steel oven and slammed the door. Some days... The old ways really were the best. Manic Memories by Teresa Colburn The loft hatch opening disturbed his sleep. Faint conversation penetrated his slumber and he jumped awake. He needed to hide now. He scrambled behind a large suitcase and held his breath. I think we have rats in the roof. Her voice got closer. A woman's head poked up through the hatch, surrounded by light from the hallway below. Her eyes scanned the dark loft. I can't see anything, but I'll give pest control a call, she said, and retreated back down. He breathed out and allowed his body to relax. That was close. He waited for the hatch to shut, then Commando crawled through the musty roof space. His ribs jabbed through his threadbare jumper and grazed the exposed wooden beams as he moved. It reminded him to eat. He hadn't eaten properly for ages. The orphanage wasn't known for its kindness. He stopped and settled into position above the lounge. Peering through the crack in the ceiling, he looked down into the comfortable room, searching for proof that these are his parents and this is his house. Maybe a photo of him cuddling with his mom, laughing up into an adoring gaze. 
Are there any of his toys still around, left discarded in a corner? He remembered his blue bouncy ball and smiled. He'd love that ball. But he saw nothing. No evidence that he was ever here. His smile faded. He crawled further along the coarse beams and slid himself down into the air cavity behind the wall. It was tight and the air was thick with dust and cobwebs, but he held still. There was another small crack, a good view from here into the kitchen. The woman was baking cookies. The smell made his empty stomach rumble. Was this mum? The man was sat at the kitchen table, carving a face into a pumpkin. Was this dad? His memories of them were faded and hazy. He shook his head with frustration. Why couldn't he remember his family when visions of the orphanage were crystal clear? Why was he there? Why didn't his parents want him? Cramps in his arms and legs were gripping but he held fast, suspended between the rough bricks of the wall cavity. He was compelled to keep watching, so desperately needing answers. Soon, he drifted into sleep again. A paramedic and a policeman brought him in. It was October 31st, Halloween. We found him in the wall cavity again, same time, same place as last year. It's so unsafe. The burnt beams and rubble are a death trap. He keeps running back to the site. Probably needs stronger medication, Doc. Yes, you're right. The psychiatrist sighed. I hate to do it, but I'll confine him to his room until he starts taking his medication again. Hopefully, the psychosis will resolve soon. Cultivating a Curse by Nicolette Stevens Once upon a time in a kingdom famous for its masquerades, there lived a princess. More than parties, the princess herself was renowned for being the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. Her long, dark curls flowed in waves down her back, her skin the palest cream, untouched by wind or sun, and her lips a perfect cupid's bow. As the princess grew, many a man attempted to woo her, but to all of them she displayed a temper that was sarcastic and selfish. Her parents despaired of ever finding a suitor, and in their desperation turned to the king's sister for advice. Her aunt, as sensible and practical as the princess appeared vain and irresponsible, was also a witch well-versed in ancient magic. She had watched her niece grow up with little more than a disapproving sniff for her brother's tendency to indulge her. For the one time she tried to prevent their spoiling, she was told it wasn't her place to interfere. Now she merely nodded her agreement as the king described his beloved daughter's failings. You'll understand that as a witch, I may only curse her. Fairies are the ones who carry blessings. Though curses are powerful teachers for those willing to change. Her warning accepted, she sent her brother away, promising him he would see her change by the All Hallows' Eve masquerade. 
That year, the princess was more demanding than ever as the masquerade approached, refusing to allow anyone but her own maid to help her with preparations, ordering the other servants to leave them alone. The day of the ball arrived, and so did her favorite aunt. Accustomed to her visits from previous years, she was led straight to her niece's chambers. A scene of chaos greeted her, several maids outside the door to her bathroom, most near tears. What is this? Her imperious voice cut through their hysterics. They explained that the princess simply refused to leave her bath, crying that she was ugly and had locked them out, all except her personal maid. Leave us. They hastened to obey, and when the room was clear, her aunt knocked on the door. It opened quickly, and she entered without a word. The afternoon passed with no sound from the room, until at last the princess, dressed in her finest regalia, emerged, followed by her aunt and her single downcast maid. But what a change! Gone was the incredible beauty that had defined her life. The princess was no more beautiful than any other woman, until she smiled, the first genuine smile anyone had ever seen from her. She danced and laughed the night away, charming everyone around her with her newfound humility. No one saw her aunt and the maid slip away during the evening. In her carriage, the aunt turned to the young woman. Are you certain this is what you want? A spark of magic danced over the girl's fingertips illuminating her niece's radiant smile. I am sure. The Witch at the End of the Road by Katerina Gerlach Halloween is a nightmare for me. Mom always forces me to join tight-knit groups of friends that don't want me, and I hate to pretend to be happy collecting sweets. This year is worse than usual. She shoves me towards a group of bullies from my school. My arms, back, and legs are still hurting from the lashing she gave me when I begged her to let me stay home. To my surprise, the trick-or-treating goes smoothly at first, even though the other's none-too-gentle nudges hurt. But then Gordon tells us of the witch at the end of the road. She turns candy into stones! His gleeful stare finds me. I shiver with dread. Not because of the witch. We wouldn't go there if she existed but due to the promise of lost sweets in his gaze. The closer we get to the witch's house, the faster my heart beats. I struggle to join the chorus, but my painful bruises remind me of Mom's anger, and I go on. You first. Gordon pushes me up the steps. There are potted plants on the porch and a black cat with white paws. I nearly wet my pants. This is it. I'll lose my sweets. Mom will be furious. I search for a solution in vain and ring the doorbell with trembling fingers. A lady older than I've ever seen opens the door. There you are! Her voice is surprisingly friendly. Been waiting for you, lazy bugs. I start speaking and stop when I notice no one falls in. Looking around, the boys are staring open-mouthed and motionless at the lady. Not spellbound? She winks at me. So you're kin, eh? Interesting. She turns to the others and taps Gordon on the forehead. You will stop hurting people. Find joy in the woods. He walks away with glazed eyes. The lady taps every boy and gives them a command, and they file away silently. 
witches do exist after all. I'm mesmerized. When she turns to me, fear freezes my blood. Although I want to run, my legs don't move. My heartbeat drowns out every sound but my breathing and her words. For you, I'll need something special. She cups my face with her hands. Barely louder than a whisper, a scream escapes my lips. She smiles and her eyes are full of sympathy. I know, honey. Be strong. It's over in a blink. She kisses my forehead, warming me. Next, I'm in Mom's kitchen, arms over my head, hurting. Stones have spilled from a plastic pumpkin onto the table. I'm covered in fresh bruises, and Mom is lifting a wooden spoon to hit me again. The witch grabs her wrist. Blue light whizzes between them. I can hardly breathe. The witch changes to the semblance of Mom, while Mom grows old and frail and vanishes eventually. Finally, witch mom hands me a bag of sweets. Guess it's time for a new life for both of us, eh? A Foot in the Door of Luxury by Sue Avery Mama always had lots of advice for me. Don't get dreams above your class, girl, or the serpiente will grab you. You're not important. Serpiente can squeeze you to nothing. You can't trust a serpiente, remember that. The enormous snakes that in my childhood nightmares haunted me ruled the sewer pipes of Mexico City. Now, though, my dirty, boring government job had me cleaning out those sewers daily. Imagine my utter shock one afternoon when one spoke to me from below a grating. Pardon me, that burrito smells divine. Might I have a bite of it? I was full anyway and consider myself kind, so offered food to what I thought was a worse-off human. Instead, though, a glistening hose-shaped figure as thick as a truck tire and very speedy pushed the grating aside with his powerful head. Rippling iridescent colors, he slid out, took the food, and disappeared back under the street. Hey! I shouted in cheated shock. Wasn't I supposed to eat that? came a confused voice. I didn't realize you were a snake. I huffed in irritation. Thus started our relationship. He was a thoughtful, learned creature, and we ate and talked every day. I complained of my lousy pay, and he brought me a gift of an expensive watch. The next week, a suitcase of designer label clothes. Although dangerous for them, Serpientes loved sneaking around stealing. For two years we worked together. My Serpiente and his friends would bring me luxurious goods. I'd sell them downtown, making good money. I lived two lives. One was refined and rich-seeming. Where people wanted my attention, I got the respect and admiration I truly deserved. In my other existence, I was nobody. Ignored cleaning sewers with snakes for friends. My dream of becoming more famous to my friends would require that they envy me completely, I decided. And I explained my need to Serpiente while I admired the new sapphire bracelet he'd brought me. When he reached for today's burrito, I took my new sharp hatchet and struck him. I cut his body cleanly in half and his eyes showed great surprise before they dimmed and went cold. I took his skin to the shoemakers and had him made into high heels and a handbag. They were opalescent, utterly beautiful, and a little painful to wear as they squeezed my feet. But everyone celebrated me. No one else had such items. 
I was very special. That night, I didn't want to remove my shoes. I just went to sleep. I woke next with a doctor at my hospital bedside. I'm sorry they had to be cut off, he said. I shook my head and a tear escaped. My beautiful shoes! No, your feet! The shoes stopped your circulation completely. From the street corner, I shout to everyone not to trust the serpientes from my wheelchair. Often, though, I hear laughter. Poor woman! She believes stories made up for children's nightmares. Just an Illusion by Jules Pass The school Halloween disco was packed. I bit my fingernails. I can't believe we're really doing this. I tugged on my full-face Joker mask. Monique donned her cloak, witch mask, and hat and grabbed her broom. I counted down the seconds. Eight o'clock. We opened the storeroom door. On cue, the first bars of Thriller played. The strobe lights pulsed, and the spotlight circled the gym. The smoke machine belched forth its chemical-smelling fog, hiding us sneaking to the net. Monique climbed. In the dimness, I soon lost sight of her. I waited. The spotlight picked out Monique, sitting on the ledge of the top of the netting. I moved into position below her. The lights turned off, plunging the gym into darkness. A hush blanketed the crowd. I started circular breathing. One, two, three. By ten seconds, my breathing was an even rhythm. Monique flashed her torch. She's ready. I flashed my torch. The spotlight turned on, fixated on Monique. Monique had moved below the ledge. She clung to the ropes by her left arm and foot. Her right leg straddled the broomstick, which swayed within the grip of her right hand. Even breaths. Vincent Price pronounced darkness falls across the land. I blew straight upwards. Monique bounced on my cushion of air. She let go of the net. Screams rang out. Use the fear. Channel. Monique stabilized in my increased flow. I shuffled ahead, Monique's descent tracking my airflow. I angled my head forward one vertebra at a time, the constant wall of air skinning my throat. The spotlight followed Monique's smooth journey. When my chin pointed ahead, I jerked my head and blew a stronger gust. Monique's broomstick rose in salute as Vincent Price pronounced and rotten inside a corpse's shell. The spotlight turned off. Monique dropped the final two meters to the gym mat. The room erupted into a cacophony. Gasping, I ran forward and grabbed Monique's right arm. Monique stumbled to her feet. We lurched into the storeroom. Monique and I tore off our costumes and shoved them under some mats. Monique hugged me. That was amazing. Un-be-leavable. I panted, hunched over, chest heaving. We slid back into the crowd, eavesdropping as we danced across the floor to imagination's just an illusion. Mark intercepted me, shouting over the music. How did you do that? What? You're not fooling me. 
have been watching you and Monique for the last 15 minutes. I chewed my lip. Monique climbed the net so we could show her in the spotlight. When the light came on on the second time, we replayed a video we had made of her fake flight. Oh no, I was by the net. I saw you. That was real. I can prove it. Mark held up his phone. I took my own video. I pursed my lips in blue. The phone flew out of Mark's hand and smashed on the floor. It was just an illusion. I smiled and danced away. Day of the Dead by Andy Rose Lachesis glanced up at her quota board on the stone wall. She still had 9,013 souls to locate in the next hour. To make matters worse, her younger sister, Clotho, continued to pull names to add to the quota. This October 31st had been the busiest yet. When the veil between worlds was at its thinnest, the soul's life threads were easier to cut. It made the fate's job much easier, and they always took advantage. As Lachesis swiped the globe before her, the scenes changed. A couple men walking their dog, women giggling in large groups, and then a dark, abandoned house at the end of Elm Street. Lachesis grabbed her coffee cup and drank heavily while attempting to locate the next person on her board. She needed plenty of energy if she was to meet her quota. Suddenly, something wispy crossed the scene before her. Lachesis frowned and moved closer to the globe. In front of the abandoned house, several translucent figures paced back and forth, unaware of the mortals they walked through. What in Hades? Lachesis set her coffee down and turned to Clotho. Are you seeing this? Hmm? Clotho continued to mess with something on her table. Clotho! She snapped her head towards Lachesis. What is it? Come look at this. There are spirits in the living world. Clotho rushed to her sister and snatched the eye from her socket. When she popped the eye in, her face instantly paled. Dozens of souls wandered from scene to scene, terrifying the living by their presence. Clotho gave the eye back to her sister. I think I may have done that. Lachesis frowned and popped her eye back in. What do you mean? How could you have... Clotho motioned for Lachesis to follow her to the table. A pile of half-sewn life threads lay in the middle. You tried to sew them back together, Lachesis growled. She grabbed the closest magazine, Underworld Digest, and rolled it tight. Before Clotho could react, she smacked her in the head repeatedly. Their oldest sister, Atropos, burst into the room looking wild. Where are the life cutters? She rushed to where she had left them and grabbed the threads Clotho had haphazardly sewn back together. How can we help? Lachesis asked as Atropos began cutting the threads again. You can go back to the globe and finish your threads. You've only got thirty minutes left and the veil is getting thicker by the second. Lachesis nodded and raced back to the globe, pulling threads out of the air. And you? Atropos turned to Clotho. You better stay out of my way. Clotho sank to the shadows and watched as her sisters fixed yet another of her screw-ups. Thus, the Day of the Dead was born. Eternal Assassins by Kate Knack I am running, running silently through the dark, wet streets of Southport with its stony pavement and creaking garden gates. Children in costumes walk in packs in the streets, moving through gates as they shout, Trick or treat! 
doors are flung open and candy falls into their waiting bags. Little ghosts and ghouls, witches and ninjas, counting their candy. They don't notice me, a true shadow, rushing past them through the night. I move toward the harbor where my true purpose, long avoided, is waiting. The air is punctuated with the whistling, sucking sounds of muscles opening and closing in the shadowy mist. The pilings that expose them now will shield them when the tide rises. My mind drifts to boarding school where it all began, to meeting Peter. This was more than an ordinary boarding school, run by the conglomerate that trained students with certain proclivities for a specialized, deadly profession. Peter and I excelled in our preliminary training. Our competitive, ferocious bond grew stronger. One early summer morning, at the end of our last term, I spotted Peter in a long black car in the courtyard. He looked out from the back window as the car moved away, his eyes shining with excitement and something else. Amusement. The car returned the next day for me. I had become a conglomerate assassin. I was good at it, and killing enveloped my existence, my being. Then came an unexpected assignment. Find Peter. Kill him. It should have been easy. It should have been quick, not eternal. Focused like a laser, I tracked him to a busy city square on All Hallows' Eve. I waited in the shadows, coldly focused on Peter through my rifle sights while revelers in costume danced in the streets. His eyes were fixed on me and his low chuckle filled my ears. We fired in unison, his chuckle stopped. I felt the unyielding pavement as my body fell hard against it. Blackness, I fled, soaring with the wind, fleeing my failure to Southport, a place of simple habits and no demands. The locals didn't bother me. They didn't seem to see me. No one noticed when I moved through their town. Every night and day, alone, in silence, in safety. For years. Safe until now. This time it is Peter who has found me, whose presence compels me to finish my assignment, as he is compelled to finish his. I sense him lying in wait. He stands on the deck of a sailboat, poised for combat, as I fly up the pier toward him, it is time. I will not fail again. I leap, ready to strangle him. Instead, I fly through him, like he's made of smoke, air, the wind. Chuckling, Peter shakes his head, saying, Trick or treat, see you around. His laughter drifts back to me as his boat slides silently into the fog. Not if I see you first, I whisper. The Old Ways by Nick Stephen. Amanda heard the doorbell. She had been told not to answer, but was feeling rebellious. Her parents had left her alone on Samhain to work at a nearby standing stone. They said they trusted her. Well, fine, but she was bored. A girl, roughly her age, stood in a black cloak and pointed hat, carrying a broomstick. Trick or treat, she said. Stars! You're positively medieval. A broomstick? Don't you think witches ever move on? We use vacuum cleaners. She stopped and screwed up her face. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. You'd better come in. I'm supposed to pretend there's no one home. Left the light on. 
How come you're alone? I thought trick-or-treaters went out in groups. I'm supposed to be with some kids from school, but I pretended to go home. They hate me, and I hate them. I think I'd like to go to school, to make some friends. We're the only witches in the village. I shouldn't have said that. Witches? Yeah, we don't fly broomsticks either. No, you use vacuum cleaners. Not to fly, stupid. Although we could do if we wanted. Don't be stupid. Witches aren't real. Amanda sniffed. No wonder everybody hates you. The other girl reddened and turned to leave. Wait, I'll prove it to you. Amanda picked up a cylinder vacuum cleaner. Old fashioned, not as bad as a broomstick though. She took it to the backyard, followed by the other girl, who said her name was Stacy. Amanda positioned them astride the cylinder, and the cleaner levitated. I I'm only learning, still need something to focus on. Stacy screamed, Let me down! Amanda took them away from the village, into deep woods. Stacy still screaming, but now with laughter. Then, disaster. Stacy fell off, grabbing the trailing hose. Her hat and broomstick dropped to the ground. The vacuum took them a little further before dropping them into a deep pond. The girls dragged themselves out, shivering. Amanda piled branches at the pond's edge. She waved her hands, muttering some words. Her face screwed tight with concentration. Soon, she had a roaring fire going. They huddled near it to dry themselves. Stacy looked down at her sodden, slime-colored clothes. I'll be grounded forever. Me too. Then Amanda remembered what they'd just been doing. Grounded, she giggled. Soon both girls were laughing. Once they were dry, they wondered how to get home. The woods were thick with impenetrable growth and no way to retrieve the vacuum. Amanda found the broom. Sometimes the old way is the best. Hold on. Stacy placed her pointed hat on Amanda's head. Do it with style. Hey, you want to hang out once we're no longer grounded? Sure. See you in about a hundred years. In the event, their sentences were only for a week, although it did feel like a century. After this, they were inseparable, but they never again flew over the woods. Brains in a Box by Amy Keeley Zombies formed a wall of moving flesh across his road, his bridge, his lovely, quiet bridge. The zombie apocalypse the human joked about on their small, thin boxes had finally come. Not trick-or-treaters, zombies. The troll heaved himself up to face them down. No riddles or bribes. He wasn't even sure they could talk. Pay the toll, he bellowed. He might as well have been part of the bridge. The zombies continued their slow, steady progress to the other side, their stench already filling the covered wooden bridge, their cry for brains, more brains, echoing in the darkness. Humans were better. Humans spoke and left good stuff. Things like jewelry, books, and small thin boxes they drew out of back pockets to try to answer his riddles. He liked those even if they sometimes played stupid shows when he said the wrong word to it. Humans said the right words. Humans cowered. Humans made tasty snacks. 
The troll wasn't even sure he could eat the zombies. They smelled so awful. And they did not stop. One stepped on the actual wood itself. Braids! He cried, arms outstretched. The old wood creaked. No! My road, my bridge, mine! The troll bellowed. He rushed them, swept them aside with his gnarled hands, long talons digging into rotten flesh. He cringed at the feel of it, and yet they kept moving, no matter how much damage he did. One even snapped forward as if to bite him. He jumped back, checking to make sure he wasn't wounded. Some humans further down had been wounded, and they were now part of the horde. Nope. Good. Brains, the zombies cried, lumbering forward, crowding the bridge. His bridge. Wiping filthy hands on it, leaving bits of flesh as they marched forward to the other side, dripping something black as they walked. Not blood. Something else. He covered his nose before realizing the stench was all over his claws. Feeling sick, he looked around for a place to clean his hands. Nothing? Perhaps under? He dove underneath his bridge, hoping he could find something among the things humans had either given to him or left behind so he wouldn't have to use his lovely stream. A crack sounded as the horde made it halfway across the old structure. It's breaking, the troll realized. The zombies were about to destroy his bridge. No more quiet moments by the stream. No more sleeping in its cool shadow. No! He stepped forward and felt something under his feet. One of the slim boxes. He grabbed it. Jumping back up, he held up the slim box, pressing the button so it lit up. Brains! He called out. The zombies watched. He called to the box to play one of the stupid shows he hated. The zombies' eyes glazed. Jaws slack, he saw the exact moment their brains stopped working. They fell over, dead. No, for the rest, he thought. And, box in hand, moved forward on his road. Unraveled by Bonnie Burns The room is dark. She has put away her daughter's toys. The mobile she bought just four months ago lies tangled in a corner. For the past two months, Maddie hasn't stopped crying for more than an hour at a time. The pediatrician assured Sylvia that everything was fine, that Maddie would grow out of it. She hadn't. Sylvia watches as Maddie's eyes start to close. She will nod off any minute now, as long as the ghost standing at the foot of her crib keeps talking. A week ago, Sylvia saw him standing in the doorway to Maddie's nursery, a gaunt figure with restless, sunken eyes. He stepped over the threshold and approached the crib, unfazed by Maddie's shattering cries. The light from the hall filtered through his thin frame, bending at odd angles on the floor. Sylvia tried to scream, but the sound died in her throat. She felt an uncanny absence hollowing out every ordinary thing in the room. The nightlight flickered and faded. The music from Maddie's sleep bunny stuttered to a stop. The figure leaned over the crib and began to whisper. Her daughter stared up into his eyes, hiccuped once, and stopped crying. As he talked, her eyes grew heavy. Finally, she slept. When the ghost finished whispering, he disappeared. Sylvia wept from relief. 
Now Sylvia waits every night, exhausted from Maddie's tears, terrified to leave her side. She wants to tell the ghost that he can stop, that she is enough, that a silver thread binds her to her daughter, thrumming even in the darkness. Tonight she sits as close to the crib as she can bear. She dares to stand, to step closer. His whispers are more urgent now, as if his time here were short. When he turns to her, his eyes open a door to everything Sylvia has ever feared. A voice whispers in her ear, I died alone and screaming. She feels herself falling, feels the silver thread tying her to Maddie begin to fray. She reaches out into the darkness, helpless against its unraveling. Then the silver thread snaps, and her heart breaks. Today, Maddie is as good as gold. When Sylvia's friends visit, they congratulate her. The hardest days are behind you, they tell her. But to each other, they say how cold Maddie's eyes seem and how her cheeks are just a bit sunken. When they leave, Sylvia picks up her daughter and holds her close. She goes to the nursery and sets the sleep bunny to play Maddie's favorite songs. When Sylvia puts her down, Maddie looks up at her with a stranger's eyes. Sylvia settles herself in the chair by the crib. She closes her eyes, and on the edge of sleep she hears it. Maddie's cries there. At the border between worlds, she reaches out and touches a single silver thread, frayed but bright. And in the quiet of the night, she begins the long, slow work of calling her daughter home. And Harm None by Jelaine Locke. Ruby hums, runs her hand over the box of fortune cookies, and then dumps them into a black cauldron by the front door. Whiskers bats at them. You'll break one and you'll be sorry. He ignores her. The doorbell rings. Trick or treat, says a small princess in a scowling Batman. The princess gently picks out a fortune cookie and puts it in her plastic pumpkin. Batman grabs a handful, muttering something about stupid cookies, and shoves them into a bag. Ruby feels three of his activate as she closes the door. She watches out the side window as Batman grabs the little girl's arm and drags her along the sidewalk. She sighs as Batman trips and falls, then reaches for the doorknob as more children approach. Trick or treat, says a butterfly, another princess, and a hula girl. Aren't you sweet? Ruby smiles and holds out the cauldron. Two hours later, the cauldron was nearly empty, the porch light turned off, and Ruby had her feet up in a chair near the fire. She sips a cup of hot tea with her eyes closed, concentrating. A white-robed witch with colorful striped socks and a purring Siamese cat on her lap. Ruby monitors her web as the children travel and the cookies activate. A small boy at home in his pajama shares a piece of candy with his sister as his mother smiles and kisses him. An overtired princess, high on sugar, screams at her father and tries to kick him as her excited poodle tackles her to the ground. A group of teenagers jeer at a fast food worker, then choke on their fries. A man robs a couple at gunpoint, sprints across the street, and is hit by a bicyclist. He punches him, turns away, and is hit by a car. Ruby winces. 
In a farmhouse outside the city, a child prays for rain and world peace. It starts to sprinkle, and Ruby laughs. Nope, no signs of world peace. A small ninja pleads with his mother in a hospital hallway to visit his feverish sister for a moment. She's asleep, Stevie. Don't wake her up. He tiptoes in, places a small pile of candy on her bedside, hugs her gently through her blankets, and tiptoes out. The fever begins to drain away. What happened to and harm none, sister? Ruby opens her eyes and smiles at Emerald and Opal. Just a little fortune fulfillment. Opal reaches into the cauldron, unwraps two cookies, and breaks them in half. Kindness is its own reward, she frowns. You walk a fine line. Ruby's smile broadens. I'm seeing who is naughty and nice. The cat on her lap starts to sprout antlers and a red nose. Ruby laughs, and for a moment she is a jolly fat man in a red suit. Then she is Ruby again, and the cat is a cat. We'll do that later, Whiskers. No Christmas before Thanksgiving. She goes back to her web. Gone Again by Hazel J. Hansen Jack Boy Gone Left at Sunhigh dressed in stupid can't-see clothes with not-toy treat carrier to trick-or-treat. Left with Jane Girl, Mom Girl, and Jane Friend Girl and go for a ride. Others home now. Smell like many people. Where Jack Boy? Mom Girl talked to Handbox. Have you seen Jack? When did you last see him? Did he say where he was going? Crap, it's almost full dark. Okay, thanks. Where Jack Boy? Rufus, stop pawing at me. I don't have time to feed you. Talks to Jane Girl. Tom said Jack was headed to the corn maze. You stay here, hand out candy, and keep your phone near. Don't give me that face. He's eight years old and all by himself. You can go to the party later. Mom girl heads to the door. We go find Jack boy. Rufus, you aren't going. Rufus, back off. Fine. Rufus, let's go for a ride. Mom girl, open, go for a ride. Rufus jumps in. Backseat smell like Jack boy. Where Jack boy? We go. Mom girl, open a hole. Rufus... Smell air. Many smells. No Jack Boy. We stop. Mom Girl let Rufus out. Smell corn. Smell Jack Boy. Mom Girl say words but ignore. Follow smell. Path through corn. Many people smell. Many directions. Jack Boy smells stronger. Rabbit smell. Hunt rabbit. Must find Jack Boy. Many mice smell. Bird smell. Coyote smell. Danger. Faster. Must find Jack Boy. Hear Jack Boy shouting, Get away! Get back! Scream. Afraid. Rufus run fast. There Jack Boy. Coyote too. Sneaky, snarly. Rufus roar, leap. Coyote run. Jack boy jump on Rufus. Hugs, licking, moaning. Jack boy hurt? No, fine. Rufus wag tail and butt. Lick salt water from Jack boy's face. World is right again. Jack boy holds collar. Whispers, Rufus. Fine mom, let's go home. Home is safe. Home has food. Rufus follows smell back to mom girl. Mom girl leaking and yelling, Jack, Rufus. Rufus fine mom girl. More tail wags, and Rufus hugs, and Jack Boy hugs. Mom girl, open, go for a ride. Rufus jump in, Jack Boy jump in. World is right again. Home. Rufus get food and treat. Jack Boy get food and treat. Rufus and Jack Boy go to bed. Jack Boy slaps at bug bite on arm. Jack Boy go to sleep. World is right again. Full dark, house quiet. Rufus sneak into closet and poke nose at metal star. Star glows. Rufus says, Canine guard, Rufus 439 reporting. 
Jack was missing for about six hours today, but has been retrieved unharmed. This is the third time his mother and sister have failed to maintain contact. Since I cannot be with Jack 24-7, I have implanted a bio-GPS in his right arm so I can track him. He is active and independent. The next decade is going to be a challenge. Signing off. Rufus settled on bed. Jackboy snores. World is right again. 10 to Halloween by Ian Labar Grammy strode toward the gate, easily navigating the silvery mists. This excursion would be the same as countless others taken at Pearl's behest. The holiday was in 10 days, and each would be used to the utmost advantage. Pearl had provided some details of the area, but her knowledge was gathered secondhand and therefore thin. She couldn't tend to these matters herself, so she entrusted her oldest friend with a solemn task. Silently, Grammy's small, dark shape emerged from a patch of fog on a suburban street. It was dark and silent. Grammy felt the familiar sense of loss as the mists withdrew, but focused instead on the chill in the air. Deep breath in and out. The air tasted of autumn, sweet, tangy, earthy. Warmth carried on the crisp chill. Something else under it, too. And that was tonight's target. A silent shadow gliding through the night, tracing the scent back to a freshly mulched hedgerow. Toes wriggling, Grammy's senses reached into the earth always hoping Pearl was wrong. She never was. Grammy reached out to the other bushes in the row and let out a small growl. Each planting was a marker, a monument. Grammy spent the next day watching from a secluded perch. Not the curmudgeonly old man, not the young androgene, the woman. Perfect, hair to toes, exactly what's expected in a place like this. But Grammy could see the darkness rolling off her like toxic fumes. Dusk drew near and Grammy locked on. Let the game begin. A female cat, all black with a tipped ear, advanced upon the yard from the shadows the woman paused at an open window and stiffened at the sound of a long, plaintive meow. She scanned the yard for the source, but saw nothing. She stormed to the closet and pulled a long black oilcloth coat from the back, checking the pockets for her supplies before heading out into the darkness. Another meow, this time from behind the privacy screen by the trash bins. She smiled triumphantly confident that her query was cornered. The woman slipped into position with practiced stealth, pulling the stun gun from her pocket, focusing all of her awareness on taking aim at the furry rump. As she was about to pull the trigger, a single hair tickled across her neck, breaking her concentration. She blinked, and the cat was gone. Vanished. Suddenly, there was a mist so thick she couldn't even see her hand in front of her face. 
and just as suddenly the mist lifted. She hadn't moved, but she wasn't in the same place she'd been when the mist rose. There was a strange smell in the air. She blinked and her tail twitched. She looked down at her body, now covered in black fur. Paws? Whiskers? A shadow gathered nearby, forming into a shape that she'd seen in the mirror every day. The shadow shape pulled keys from the oilcloth coat, got in the car, and drove into the night. Halloween Pest by Elizabeth McCleary Haley heard the footsteps just before Abel raced past, Dracula's cape flapping behind. He reached out for her plastic pumpkin, nearly knocking it out of her hand. Someone identifiable followed close behind, cackling through his skeleton mask. At least he didn't swipe at her Halloween bucket. Jerk, she muttered and adjusted her pirate patch. Haley wanted to yell, but learned long ago that yelling at Abel only made things worse. Pretending it didn't matter when he taunted her, something he did with annoying regularity, meant he didn't have as much fun and stopped sooner, usually. Jordana laughed and nudged Haley's shoulder. Her fortune teller jewelry, strands of tiny silver coins dangling from her wrists, ankles, and forehead, jingled. She often emulated her mom's so-called psychic powers. I know he has a crush on you. Yeah, well, he has a stupid way of showing it. I just want to be left alone for once. Careful what you wish for, Jordana said. Mom says Halloween has ears and gives answers. Haley stared at her best friend. What does that even mean? She asked. Heck if I know. Probably something about making wishes or whatever. Halloween is lucky. Good luck, bad luck. It's all the same, really. Haley sighed as she let her friend's chatter wash over her. It never ended. One more block, Jordana mumbled. Haley wasn't sure when Jordana's head had disappeared into her large black candy sack. Maybe two blocks. Her head emerged. I want more chocolate. Haley's shoulders lifted in a shrug. I guess, she said. She didn't really care about the candy. She'd never had much of a sweet tooth. Just so the boys don't come back. Abel isn't even that cute. I told him once. Haley tuned her out again, following in silence. It was just easier that way. You know, Jordana said after a few more houses, there's a thing Mom sometimes does when she wants to get rid of salesmen. Want to try it on Abel? Um, come on, what can it hurt? Haley didn't resist when Jordana grabbed her arm and pulled her into the shadows between houses. Just picture Abel's annoying face and repeat after me. She put on her mother's spooky fortune teller voice. Hallows of the night, lend me your ear. Oh, brother, you're kidding, right? Haley was definitely not into this. Just say it, insisted Jordana. Fine, hallows of the night, yada yada. Haley giggled. Say, lend me your ear, Jordana sounded serious. After a deep breath to stop laughing, Haley finally said it. Make the pest. Make the pest, Haley repeated. Disappear. Before Haley could say it, Abel popped out from between the bushes, followed by his skeleton-clad companion. What boys? Who's annoying? Jordana threw her hands in the air. Oh my gosh, you really are a pest. Disappear, Haley said, almost whispering. Silence whooshed into the void Jordana left behind. Haley and Abel stared at each other. She really was kind of a pest. 
The Blood by Haneke Joubert The marble headstone shone in the milky moonlight. I trailed my fingers over the names etched in them, while youthful voices cried trick-or-treat in the far distance. I found the teenagers staring at a newly covered grave, fists clenched by his sides. A golden chain with a cross lay crumpled in the dirt in front of the tombstone. The smell of fresh earth and pain still thick in the cool air. Eric Williams, beloved son and brother, safe in the Lord's arms. Evening, I said, my voice neutral. The boy stiffened, his breath quickening. His pale jaw tightened briefly before he spat a quick, Get lost! The coffin's empty, I said, in what must sound like the worst icebreaker ever. I know. The youth bared his teeth, two sharp fangs flashing in the light. Leave, before I damn my soul even further. Distant laughter startled him, and he jerked in its direction. What are you doing here on Halloween? I can't go home, he said in a lifeless voice. You killed your family. The vampire whirled on me, eyes red. Never! Ah, nibbled on strangers then. The ground slammed into my back in a blossom of pain. I almost regretted coming here. But the desperation on the kid's face as he pinned me down strengthened my resolve. Battling for air, I held my hands out in surrender, signaling for the others to stay where they are. Pain exploded in my eye. A little shithead punched me. Eric! Enough! The mention of his name made him pause. There wasn't much time. The blood haze filled his furious eyes, turning them black as Halloween's cat. Eric lunged from my throat, but I was ready for him. Borrowed strength surged through me, and I shoved him away with a forceful heave. Intoxicated by the power, I jumped to my feet. It was easy to forget the strength wasn't mine. My old abilities didn't come anywhere near this. What does tonight celebrate? Candy. Eric muttered under his breath as he untangled himself from where he'd landed. Teenagers. It celebrates death. Eric shook out his arms. That's why you're here? No. Death's out of style where I'm from. I bared my fangs. Eric backed away in surprise. You're Pastor James Beckner. Sympathy crossed his face, replaced by a terrible sadness. Not anymore. Not after becoming that. Dirt crunched under my knees as I kneeled to pick up the cross. He gave his life for all of us. He conquered death. Do you really think vampirism is going to throw him a curveball? Eric gave me a disbelieving look. A blood transfusion will help the cravings. Do you consent? Whatever floats your coffin. My team set up the IV and Eric relaxed as the blood entered his veins. For a second I saw the faces of the hundreds of vampires I'd ministered to before him. Some understood, others didn't. Resolve straightened my spine. I slipped the necklace over Eric's head. You're not lost. To be remembered by Gemma Ware I'd always wanted to be seen, to be noticed, but I'd never considered that the price would be so high. I'd always wanted to be seen, to be noticed, but this wasn't quite how I'd imagined it as I stood on the building's ledge. 
You can still come back. Just take a step towards me, the cop behind me shouted. He was a blurry shadow behind the halo of his torchlight. I smiled at him, shuffling closer to the edge. Not today. I was ready to be done. Ready for it to be over. I just needed a little more courage, another second. The blade in my hand caught the light, making me glance down. I held it in front of me, out of sight of the cop. There were only small patches of metal that weren't covered in blood. I shuddered, looking away. I should have dropped it before now, but my fingers still wouldn't let go. I tried again. Nothing happened. The wind threatened to tumble me over the edge, whipping my blood-splattered white dress around my ankles. I steadied myself, glancing down at the half a dozen stories to the ground. High enough that I'd be dead, but it wouldn't be a drawn-out fall. I hoped. There were people gathering on the street, staring at me in the darkness, though I doubt they'd see much. The full moon was a bright, bulging globe of light above me, but it wasn't sunlight. Part of me wished I was down there with them, the part that was afraid. I'd always thought I'd go quietly into my death, at the appropriate time, forgotten before the soil finished covering my coffin. I'd been so very wrong. They would never forget me now, no matter what happened. I should have known better. I pushed one bare foot out over the edge. The air rushed to greet me, the cold icy chill making me shiver. I braced myself against my fear, unsure how much more freedom I had left. Please, whatever happened, we can fix it. Come back. He hadn't been inside yet. He didn't know what I'd done. I tried to finish my step, let the wind take me over, but I couldn't. I stepped back from the ledge, body moving without my consent. I wanted to curse, tried to form the words and failed. My lips curled into a smile. Did you think it would be that easy? The voice came from the dark shadows of my mind. I have need of this flesh yet. I watched helplessly as I moved through the world, like someone was playing a virtual reality game with my body. Each step not my own, not my choice. Fear curled around me. Let me go, I whispered in my mind. He wanted to be remembered, the voice said, purring the words as it laughed. Not like this. Then you shouldn't have done a summoning ritual. The voice chided me, hand stroking the knife that was hidden behind my back now, moving closer to the cop. Everyone knows not to summon a demon on Halloween. Socks of Destiny by Fenya Habka October 31st, Scald ran out of knitting yarn. She wandered around in the Norn's gloomy realm, where humankind's threads hung from the ceiling like spider webs. Scald and her sisters took care of all these lives, tangled them, or cut some as destiny requested it. But since lives and their threads had grown longer and the gods had stopped involving themselves into politics and ordinary lives, the Norn's realm had become quite silent. 
out of sheer boredom, sculled, had picked up knitting. Today again, she felt the urge to keep her hands busy with some wool. Sitting on the border of a well, Scald glanced at all the shimmering white threads, gripped her needles, and picked up. Moments later, her needles clicked in harmony, knit to, purl to. She worked a human's life into a nice, cozy hat. Mr. Moore's life had been quite tangled. He found himself always ending up in the same places, the school, park, church, and his parents' house. He grew old, retired, planted the most beautiful garden. And one day, everything suddenly ended. October 31st, carrying scissors, he stumbled and cut his throat. He bled to death before the ambulance arrived. Scald put her new hat on, brushing aside the thread of leftover yarn. This human life had been so comfortable to knit with, soft to the fingers, and the pattern came out clear in the milky white knitwork. Scald could not help but cast on the next project. What on hell are you doing? Scald dropped a stitch when her sister's voice destroyed the silence. Erd raised in front of her, the old eyes pinned on yarn and needles in Scald's hands. I'm knitting, Erd laughed, short and humorless. She grabbed the white hat. I can see that as well as what you're knitting with. Those are human lives you're interlacing. Scald put her knitting down, felt bad, but shrugged. I will have to tell the gods, Scald. Oh, come on. There are so many humans nowadays. I just take care that their lives become meaningful. Erd's eyes pierced her like a tapestry needle. Scald pointed at the hat in her sister's hands. Would you like a matching pair of socks? The lives of Jack and Jill came to a tragic end on October 31st, when the twins celebrated their 50th birthday together. They had their friends over, cake and stories, but they would not wake up from their nap after dinner. Erd sat there, jiggling her toes in her new pair of socks. Her sister Scald felt adventurous. Not only did she break those old-time laws, she also gained some gorgeous knitwear. Maybe she would give an oversized cardigan or a scarf a try. With her hands going through the strings around her, she brushed aside her worries. With the yarn store a hundred miles away, she began to see her realm as a real lifetime stash. It Ain't Over Till the Fat Man by James Hooson The heavy-set man opened the bakery door, entering meekly. Lydia, the owner and baker, welcomed him. Mr. Gourmand, how are you today? Quite well, thank you. I wanted to tell you those chocolate chip cookies you gave me really worked. You can see the difference. He hurled up his arms and turned side to side. I'm so glad. I told you they were special. How much weight did you lose? I'm down 300 from 450 pounds. He looked down as he asked, By chance, do you have any more? The woman hesitated. Yes, but as I told you before, they are very powerful. You really shouldn't eat any more of them. But I was thinking, if I could just have one more, I could lose some more weight. See, I met this woman and we hit it off. I really think she likes me. 
She looked at me like a friend. If I lose more weight, then maybe she'll see me as something more. You know, the woman smiled. I understand and sympathize. But if you like this girl and want her to take you more seriously, wouldn't it be worth the effort to do the work yourself? Then she'd know that you were doing it for her. My baked goods are to help you get you started. You need to do the rest of the journey yourself. He looked dejected. So, you're not going to help me out? I've already helped you as much as I can. I'm sorry, but no. That's not good enough. A mixture of torment and rage flashed across his face. He grabbed for the plate of cookies, dropping a few on the floor as he pulled it to himself. No, you mustn't! She grabbed his arm. He shrugged her off, pushing her away. Lydia fell to the floor. He raced out of the store. Arriving home, he reached in his pocket for the cookies. He pulled out broken pieces and crumbs. No, I need these. He stuffed a piece into his mouth. Would it still work? He swallowed. Nothing's happening. I could feel it last time. Why isn't anything happening? Desperately, he stuffed the rest of the pieces in his mouth. He licked the crumbs off the palm of his hand. He went to the sink and guzzled water directly from the faucet. Still nothing. He sank to the floor and cried. He was going to be fat like this forever. No one would ever love him. It was then he remembered the baker's words. The cookies were just to start. He could do the rest of the work himself. He'd exercise and start eating healthy. He could do this. He was motivated by his desire to be loved and would become a new man. He smiled at the prospect. The next morning, he woke, ready to start over. He looked in the mirror and saw the new man. A skeletal figure, skin barely stretched over bones, looked back at him. Unwanted Visitors by Rebecca Hansen Whispering in footsteps on my porch drew my attention from my carefully simmering brew. I tried to ignore them, keeping a close eye on my concoction instead. I was on a crucial step, and if I didn't get it just right, I might not survive. Damn it! I jerked my hand at the exact wrong moment, as a loud bang and several smaller pops boomed from the porch. My sigh of relief when my concoction only turned sour and congealed quickly turned to frustration. I opened the front door in time to see several adult figures disappear out the gate. I shook my head at the debris and scorch marks that covered my porch. Ash was beginning to settle over everything. It would take hours I didn't have to clean it up. It was ironic they would use firecrackers tonight. By my calculations, it was TPing night. Would I have to wait? Could I take another year? My back bowed at the prospect. When it started, I went to the police, but they said they couldn't help. It wasn't until I took it to the mayor that I discovered why. Which, he called me. Crone. The scorn in his voice couldn't hide his fear. The truth didn't matter. My crooked frame and premature white hair were all he saw. I straightened my shoulders as much as my scoliosis would allow and turned back to the kitchen to start over. As I began the final step, I heard scratching on the porch. 
but pushed the sound to the back of my mind. I couldn't afford to deal with it now. Hours later, I set the final batch of perfect-looking candy apples to cool. I checked the clock and slumped in defeat. I would never get them wrapped and delivered to the Halloween Festival's grandstand before anyone arrived. The sudden silence, then the sound of retreating footsteps drew my attention back to the porch. Angry and frustrated, I hurried to the door, yanked it open, and stopped short. The porch was spotless. Even the scorch marks were gone. And standing with a bucket and a scrub brush was the mayor's wife, Lily. I'm sorry, she said meekly, waving her hand toward the porch. I've tried to tell him to stop, but no one listens to me. As she turned to go, a dark blotch around her eye broke me from my shocked silence. Wait, I said. Maybe we can help each other. I led her into the kitchen. Candy apples are my husband's favorite, she gasped. Only he's allowed to have them. I know. As comprehension dawned, a small smile lit her face. It was the first I had ever seen her wear. We got them wrapped and delivered with no one the wiser. The blast was just big enough to take out the mayor and his closest friends. An investigation turned up a suicide note. Lily was the last unwanted visitor I ever had. She moved in a few weeks later. Inhuman by Gina Fabio It drifts down the street unnoticeable invisible. Its target is just around the corner, a young woman killed in a car crash. Tragic is what humans would call it, ironic to some. She was a medium on the way to talk to the dead. It doesn't care either way. A job's a job, and human emotions are not its purview. When it turns the corner, it finds the crash just where it should be. But no woman, well, her body is there. Her soul is not. Not in the body and not near it. It happens sometimes with mediums. They think their ability to communicate with the dead comes from some sort of mastery over death. And they run. They escape or think they have. But death will always have its due. It drifts closer to the crash to trace her soul from its starting point. Too late, it sees the crystal scattered on the pavement, the sigil stitched into her shirt. She is calling it, binding it from beyond the grave, not her soul, but the body she left behind made into a trap, a trap that it has sprung. In moments, it's been drawn into her empty body. Pain is a new experience. It doesn't quite know what to do with it, so it ignores it. It does not ignore the anger and drags its new broken body out of the wreck. There are screams, shouts, the movement of living humans, but more importantly, there is the missing soul watching, mere feet away. Ah, she was medium after all, and with the spirit's help, her body could see the things a reaper sees. And now it is both medium and spirit. She thought she had hidden herself and trapped it. 
when in fact she had only given it the tools it needed to find her. Ha! Fool! It breaks the sigils. It moves the crystals away as it crawls toward her. It watches her smug look vanish as it breaks the bindings and tricks and sheds her body like an old skin and rises up before her in all its deathly glory come to claim her. Smugness is also a new experience, but one it thinks it will keep just for moments like this. After all, death will always have its due. Blind Date by Arlo Sharp Do you like blind dates? She asked. They're okay, he replied, as long as the seeing-eye dog isn't too vicious. She erupted in gales of laughter, and he joined her. The shared humor helped break the ice, and they found themselves revealing intimate details of their lives to each other. But she kept certain secrets. The waiter arrived with their drinks, and they ordered dinner. After more small talk, she said, There's something special about you. I've never met anyone quite like you before. Thank you, I guess, he said as he lifted a glass of red wine. But I bet you say that to all the guys. She laughed again. Actually, I don't. I really think you're an excellent gentleman. And I think you're a fine lady. But I'm a lot older than you. Perhaps so. But I've been around longer than you think. They'd met on an online dating service, she expressing the desire for a relationship with an older, mature male. He contacted her and they arranged to meet for dinner. He imagined her as young enough to be his daughter but she could have passed as his granddaughter instead. She looked thoughtful. I hope you don't think I'm too forward, but where is this going to lead us? First things first. Let's get to know each other, unless that's a no-no. She laughed some more. Actually, it's a yes-yes. The meal went well, mostly salad for her and mostly red meat for him. She insisted on splitting the check. Are you liberated or something? He asked with a smile. Or something, she replied as they left the restaurant. The chilly late autumn night had fallen. She surprised and delighted him by getting in his car, a massive 1950s sedan. Didn't you drive to meet me here? He asked. No, I flew. There's no airfield nearby, so you must be an angel. Well, not exactly. She fluttered her hands like the wings of a small bird or a bat. He started the car and she gave him turn-by-turn directions to her rural home. At last they stopped. He looked around. No houses, only deep forest and an ancient cemetery with worn and canted tombstones. She had to be joking, right? Wrong. Want to live forever? She murmured as she turned toward him with a wide grin, revealing unnaturally long canine teeth. You call this living? He said, flashing his own grin and exposing a pair of canines even longer than hers. The pretty television news anchor lady positioned herself for her cameraman so the old gravestones would be visible in the background. Audiences loved that sort of thing. Sheriff, what do you make of this? Do you think it's a suicide pact of some kind? If it is, it's a mighty peculiar one. The puzzled lawman said as he regarded the vintage automobile parked beside the tombstones. In the front seat, two blood-soaked corpses sat locked in an embrace, their teeth buried in each other's throats.
Fluffy by Vanessa Wells. I was petting my emotional support cat as I finished my weekly appointment with a therapist when I mentioned, I think my cat is a grim reaper. My therapist pen stilled. She looked at me, eyes blinking slowly behind her wire-rimmed glasses, lips pursed. Did you just say your cat is the Grim Reaper? No, I, I said my cat is a Grim Reaper. Saying there's only one Reaper is like imagining there's a Santa who can deliver billions of toys in one night. <laughs> Logistically, the number of deaths just don't work with only one Reaper. Unless, of course, the Reaper can move outside of time and space, which I admit is possible. But I'm not going to claim my cat is the only Reaper. Her pen scratched on the paper. But to clarify, you do in fact believe that your pet is the living embodiment of death. Fluffy purred as I scratched behind her ears. I didn't at first. What made you change your mind? I kept petting the cat. She's been with me 40 years. Not possible. A lot of what Fluffy does isn't possible. Her lips tightened. Why exactly do you think she is the Grim Reaper? Because she's attended every death in a six block radius of my home since the day she showed up? I pulled a photo album from my purse. I have newspaper clippings. Hero cat saves baby from fire. Six die. Cat visits nursing home before residents pass away freak accident during robbery, suspect tripped over cat and impaled himself on a bratwurst. She winced. How do you impale yourself on a bratwurst? You don't. Not unless it really just is your time to go. She skimmed through the clippings for a long moment and shut the book decisively. All I see are stray black cats and a newspaper trying to run something scary for Halloween. This isn't a Halloween thing. Last week, Fluffy and I were at the butcher's, and he choked on a piece of bubblegum. I heard about that. Such a kind man. He was a lech, she narrowed her eyes. Are many of the people who die at the hands of, er, paws of Fluffy people that you don't like? I shrugged. I make a point to avoid looking too closely at Fluffy's activities. I just make sure her litter box is clean, and she has plenty of treats. The timer dinged. That's all of our time for this week. I'd like to pencil you in next week so we can discuss an appropriate array of prescriptions. I picked up my purse and the cat carrier. I'd like that too, Doc. I really would. I gave her a commiserating half-smile, the kind I give people when we're both stuck in the rain. The thing is, I didn't choose to bring Fluffy here today. Fluffy insisted. I walked out the door and left the cat. She'd be back in the apartment before I got there. I'd be stuck trying to find a new therapist. A Familiar Kind of Magic by Danielle Cormier She was cautioned not to hang all her hopes on one gift, but she couldn't stop herself. Hope held a kind of magic, and so did wishes. No charm was more powerful than squeezing her eyes shut, 
and blowing out the fire on her cake. On tonight of all nights, she was sure to get her wish. Still, she needed to be sure. Adults often had the last word in these matters. She had gathered all the ingredients beforehand and carried them with her as she crawled through the hedgerow and climbed over the wall. Mind the cracks, she thought, before leaping toward the sky. The closest experience she had to flying. There, on the other side, was the little wooden cage which housed an unwilling frog. She had tried to convince a dragonfly to enter, but fairies were such difficult creatures. Even when they were pretending to be something, they were not. In a circle of stones by the willow tree, she deposited the bits she'd need for her spell. Pieces of candy stolen from the basket on the porch, a piece of birthday cake, two flowers crushed beneath her feet, a feather, three seashells, and a wishing stone which she grasped tightly in her hands before adding it to the collection. She'd felt sorry for keeping the frog hostage all afternoon, but she had to wait for the moment when magic weaved itself into the world. She couldn't take any chances. In the distance, her parents were calling. She wasn't supposed to leave the yard. Just a little longer, she whispered to the frog as she breathed in the scent of enchantment brought on by the rising moon. And then it was time. She retrieved a little pouch from her pocket and sprinkled catnip on the ground before releasing the frog into the center, but not before placing a careful kiss on its back, because magic often demanded such things. The frog allowed her to finish the incantation before it hopped out and away. She set herself to work, muttering words only she and the knight understood. Spinning around inside the circle, her arms outstretched. It was a simple spell, sincere in its intentions. She hoped it was enough. She hurried back full of apologies, gambling that her parents wouldn't be too upset with her, not when she had wished so hard earlier in the day. Inside her room, she transformed herself. Black dress, black boots, a black cape, pointy hat, decorated in glittering stars and glowing moons, and an ash wand she'd fashioned with her mother's help. She emerged ready to utter magical chocolate-producing words. What she hadn't expected were the words special surprise, spoken by her parents on top of a pillow, inside of a box, a ball of black fur curled up into itself. Gently, she scooped up her little familiar, already vibrating its magic in her arms. A fair trade, she decided, for having kissed a frog. Home by Barbara Lund The creature desperately twisted and wriggled and pulled itself through the tiniest gap between worlds, until it popped into existence in the parking lot of the local less-than-five-bucks store. Looking around furtively, it became a shadow and panted until it got its breath back. A group ran past, but its denizens were all wrong. A ghost? A witch? A human in black leather with a sword? They should not be cooperating, but battling each other. Drawn by the improbability, it followed until the witch glanced back, took it by the hand, and dragged it along with them. Trick or treat! The rest of them chorused to a closed door. Firelit, scowling pumpkin faces flickered. The door opened, and an antlered goddess gave them all candy. The creature snatched the offering before it could be rescinded, shoving the whole thing into its mouth. So wrong. This was supposed to be the human world. 
but it was populated with strange, marvelous creatures who proffered sweets instead of screams. It would never go back, it decided. Some of the firelit pumpkin faces were friendly instead of fierce. Shrieks and giggles threaded through the night, and it belonged to a group. Strange, but it belonged. At the next door, the sweet giver was a human. She looked at it three times before latching onto one of its spindly, spidery hands and waving the ghost, the witch, and the sword bearer on. Come in, she told it, gently dragging it past the threshold. Even after the door was closed behind it, the human didn't let go, but examined it more carefully. You're not from around here, she said, not like the others. Not, it agreed, fear biting its tongue. But after all, what could a human do to it? other than send it back to where it had come from. Our world is strange tonight, the human said. You won't find friends so easily tomorrow. The others will take off their costumes and masks when, if you want to stay, you should put yours on. The creature cocked its head, baffled. On? You wish to stay? She asked. Stay, it confirmed. Nothing awaited it but pain and more pain in the other world. Then I'll help you. The human pulled her long black hair off and plopped it onto the creature's head. The creature hissed, but it couldn't back away, still caught by the human's other hand. A wig, the human said softly, shaking out short blonde hair. You'll need makeup too, but with the right clothes, you'll fit right in at the middle school. You're not any stranger than the rest of the little monsters out there. I blinked, baffled. Why? The woman finally released its hand. I'm lonely, she admitted, and you want to stay. You keep me company. I give you candy. I stay, the creature nodded. Anything was better than going back. Add in candy? It would do a lot for candy. The woman smiled. Happy Halloween. <laughs> I like that one a lot. That's a, that's a good that's a good one. That's good. Sheriff, what do you make of this? Do you think it's a suicide pact of some kind? If it is, it's a particularly... If it is, it's a per... If it is, it's a mighty particular one. If it is, it's a mighty pecu... Fucking A. Mighty peculiar, mighty peculiar, bum bum bum. If it is, it's a mighty peculiar one.